0: All right, well, uh, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. And it's dark outside. It's like, looks like it's evening. So, but your faces make up for all of that. So. It's the lighting. It's the lighting. So. All right. It's good to see all of you. Um, just a report on my wife. She's slowly uh, doing better. And uh, it's, uh, it kind of is, you know, Two steps forward, one step back and but uh, she really has a good attitude about it, better than I certainly would uh, she 's almost ninety days in bed, and I mean she gets up and moves around, but you know most of her time is in bed, but she 's getting stronger, and uh, she 's looking forward to what 's next, and so am I but uh, and again, we just want to thank you guys so much for loving on us and um, serving us and it 's been really sweet, so from the meals and people helping clean my floor, and um, it's been nice. So. But anyway, um, I, we have a very disciplined morning here because so much is on the agenda, and I have Romans 8, so um, we better get our review and get started and, and go. So uh, if you're new this morning, uh, we, by uh, the conviction of ours, we go through the scriptures a book at a time, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter that we might capture the, the context in which the, the Scriptures was, were originally given. And, um, and so we have been currently in Galatians. And we've stopped in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, uh, and we've moved to Romans to help complement what Paul is teaching there. We ended in 5.16 where Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And uh, so that is, it's the walking in the spirit that I want to explore more. We don't need any lessons in what it is to lust in the flesh. Amen. We're all experts. Uh, It's what we're not used to. It's what doesn't come natural to us, that we want to gain as much information as we can so that we can walk it out in our day-to-day lives. So the theology of Romans is important. And uh, so that's where we're, so far, we've briefly looked at Romans six and chapter seven, uh, which I believe uh, you can't understand what it is to walk in the spirit without those things, because they're foundational to it. And uh, so uh, keeping those in context is essential as we then move into chapter eight. So as a review, in chapter six, Paul, he stated the facts regarding this new relationship that we have to sin. It's broken. It's broken. It's over. Uh, and when you read the chapter, it kind of reads a lot like a uh, an emancipation declaration. Yeah, through our death with Christ, he says the tyranny of sin was broken, and we're now free from its slavery. Romans uh, slavery. Romans six six. And through our resurrection with Christ, we've been uh, granted the ability to live a new kind of life. And the interesting thing: he doesn't get into that life until Romans eight. He's just it's just theorized at this point, okay? And, uh, and then with this freedom comes the necessity, the responsibility of reckoning, of believing that all of those facts are true of us and they're true for us. We have to uh, bank on the fact that our emancipation has been fully secured. We're now free from the tyranny of sin and we're able to live for God. That's Romans chapter six, verse 11. And with this freedom, he says, we have the responsibility To reject the demands of sin. Its tyranny is broken, but its influence and demands have not ended. You've all noticed that, right? Say, say yes. Yes. Okay, good. It's no fun to be alone at the pulpit in my sin. (laughs) Yeah, to reject its demands. It's our responsibility, and as he says, from withholding our bodies from its passion, and then instead we have to subject our bodies to God in obedience to his will. That's Romans chapter 6, 12 through 14. So chapter 6 is all about the facts and then what we should do about them. Okay. But when we move into Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, we discover the apostle Paul in a state of struggle as he attempts to live what we might call an emancipated life. Okay. We find Paul in a war for his independence. He wants to exercise his God-given freedom to live a righteous life, but he discovers that he's just no match for the sin nature. It's a humbling but necessary discover. And so even though Paul understood, he knew and understood the facts of Romans 6, he just wasn't wasn't experiencing this new kind of life. He just found himself at war all the time with his fleshly passions, desiring to live According to God's will, he was powerless to achieve God's will. He says that. He said that he possessed the will to do good, but lacked the power to achieve it. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. So being set free from the tyranny of sin, he's saying it's not sufficient in itself to live free. Freedom's not that simple. He said, I don't understand what I'm doing. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that is what I practice. Romans chapter 7, verse 15 and 19. Paul was free, but he wasn't experiencing freedom. For many people, their will has been redeemed. It's been renewed. For they, we delight in the righteousness of God, but how to achieve that righteousness seems to be intangible. It seems to be out of our reach. It's too much for us. And that's what Paul experienced in Romans 7. I I see it all the time in believers. They want to live for Christ. They desire to live for Him. But they go from one failure to the next, wondering all the while, if I am free from the tyranny of sin, why do I struggle so much with it? And like Paul, we say, I am a wretched man. I'm a wretched man. So you know, I think the good news in all of this is that fundamentally, Paul is no different than us. Is he? No. He was no Superman. That's chapter 7. And it's proving to us that no one is capable, no one is morally strong enough in themselves to live for God. And Paul's experience was reported to us intentionally by God to demonstrate that man's redeemed will is not sufficient in itself to bring about God's righteousness. We can know His good will, we can dream of it, we can long for it, but never achieve it in our own strength. I believe that recognizing that about ourselves is essential to walking in the Spirit, because until you realize that you are totally insufficient in your own means, you'll never learn to trust the Spirit. You'll tell God, I got this, and then you'll live in that revolving door of Romans chapter seven, okay, yeah, stuck there. We must, like Paul, not only say no to sin, we must also say no to self-reliance, to self-sufficiency, we have to come to terms with our own weakness and cry out for help, as Paul did. He confesses what he is, O oh, wretched man that I am. And then he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans seven twenty-four through 25. Paul tried it, he failed, and now it was time for God. It was time for God. And that brings us to Romans 8. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading to you from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Please read along and listen carefully. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his, and if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. let's pray. well Father, what a, an amazing chapter, and uh, we thank you, Lord, that there's light beyond chapter seven that uh, Paul did not remain there but moved on, or was rather we might say was moving on progressively. And so Lord, I pray that the, the most valuable truths in this large section of scripture, Lord, that it would be embedded in our hearts, and Lord, that you would invigorate us to live a life that is well-pleasing to you. So Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, be seated. I can't remember what time I'm supposed to be done, but uh, yeah, so I actually just read 14 verses to you, but um, this morning I'm only going to focus on four, okay, on four, Because after that, things are pretty much a commentary on what has already been said. But the meat that we're looking for to complement Galatians 5 is in the first four verses. Now, there are two things, at least two things, that you should immediately notice from chapter 7 to chapter 8. First is Paul's tone or his attitude. Do you notice the difference? It's pretty amazing. Paul goes from, woe is me, in chapter 7, to a shout of triumph in chapter eight. There was great struggle and failure in chapter seven, but there's victory and there's rejoicing in chapter eight. In chapter seven, Paul says, I am carnal, sold under sin. I wanna do the right thing, but I end at doing what I hate. I want to do good, but I do evil instead. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, not a good thing dwells. Sin dwells in me, which is subject to the law of sin. I'm a wretched man subject to the body of death. That is no way to live, right? Yeah. But in chapter 8, in spite of his failures, he clings to the truth of the gospel saying, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit has made me free from the law of sin and death. The righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled not by me, but in me, by the Holy Spirit, just by the way, as Ezekiel prophesied about the new covenant. He says, I'm, He's talking about experiencing righteousness in his life because of the Spirit. He's energizing me to control my appetites, the appetites of my body. He's energizing me to be yielded to himself. So because of the Holy Spirit, Paul is now living according to the facts of Romans chapter 6. That transition is amazing. It's amazing. Failing in 7, that is to experience the truths of chapter 6. It's depressing, discouraging, but in chapter 8... He's living them, he's enjoying them, and he's celebrating. So that's the first thing you should notice. The second thing is more subtle, but I think it's more important, okay? In chapter seven, Paul was the one trying to achieve this desired righteousness on his own, that is, in his own strength. He was trying to be the agent of change in his life. it's easy to demonstrate because the personal pronoun is used over 30 times in 11 verses always referring to Paul's self-effort to be holy. Chapter 7 is all about Paul being in charge of his own righteousness, which was a big failure. But this personal pronoun vanishes in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, except in verse 2, but instead of Paul doing the work himself, the work is being done to him and for him by the Holy Spirit. Do you see the difference? He goes from an active agent to a passive one. He goes from doing the work himself, which was a failure, to having the work done in him, which is a success. When we get into chapter 8, Paul remains willing, but kind of passive. And that's the key to walking in the Spirit. So let's, let's look at the highlights. First 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, the phrase kind of seems out of place, but I think in our experience it's super important, okay? The phrase in Christ is its a technical phrase used by Paul to describe those that have been legally justified through faith in Christ, legally justified. And so anyone who is in Christ, he says, they are exempt from legal condemnation. You're exempt if you're a believer. There's absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so... Paul doesn't look back on his struggles in Romans 7 and worry about his salvation. Do you get it? That's not what he's worried about. It was never an issue of whether or not he was saved. And I believe that is important for those who truly, genuinely desire to please God but struggle as Paul did. How many people do you know that have had a struggle with sin and what they worry about is their salvation? That is a satanic distraction. Okay, It's a satanic distraction. When those who love God and want to obey him and find themselves grieved over their moral weakness, they should not concern themselves with whether or not they're saved, but how it is they can overcome. How it is they can overcome. Satan would like you to give up and say, well, I'm just not saved. Okay? It's like the athlete who stumbles, falls, gets upset, and walks off the field. The true believer is not like that. He runs, he stumbles, he falls, and he gets up and he runs for the finish line as he stumbles and falls again, okay? But when he looks up, he looks to the finish line, where Christ, who has secured his salvation, is standing there, okay, yeah. It's when someone stumbles in sin over and over again without any regard for God, then we have a problem. They are not in Christ. But in Romans seven, Paul never gave up or fret about his salvation. He kept pushing forward until he found relief It wasn't an issue of his salvation, it was an issue of his sanctification. Let's move on real quick to the latter half of verse 1, which says, "...who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." Now, there are two problems with this ending, Okay, and I I realize this is controversial. Uh, First, it's not found in any of the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. appears to be something that a scribe had inserted when he was transcribing the scriptures. And second, it doesn't follow with Paul's argument, okay? The, The ending here assumes that our standing with God is based upon how well we perform, whether or not we walk in the Spirit, whereas the first half states that our standing with God is based upon us being in Christ. You see, if our standing with God is based upon our behavior, we will all be lost forever, forever, because there are none righteous. No, not even one, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Okay. But God didn't save us, and he doesn't keep us based upon our performance. But if he did, what would be the standard performance for us to be kept or discarded? What would be the standard? Perfection? Oof, wow. Uh, that's actually a, an LDS Mormon doctrine, not a biblical one, okay? We're not saved on our own merits, amen? Not by works of righteousness, which you have done. It was according to his mercy that we were saved, okay? And we're not kept by our own merits, okay? We are in Christ because of what Christ has done and absolutely nothing else. So because of the manuscript data and because of Paul's consistent use of the phrase in Christ, it doesn't appear that the second half of the verse is genuine. The statement is actually made again in verse four, where it follows logically in Paul's argument, and it's also found in all of the ancient manuscripts. Okay, we'll discuss that in a moment. Uh, if you have questions about that afterwards, uh, we can address it. By the way, if in your translation of the Bible, it's only in the New King James and the King James. It's not in any other modern translation. Okay, it might be in brackets uh, in the text or down in the, the notes. Verse two. Paul says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, there's two laws here, the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. Now, mind you, neither one of these are written laws, neither one of them, okay? They're principles that regulate the course of one's actions, like the laws of nature uh, keep things in their course, all right? Remember, in Romans 7.23, Paul complained about the law of sin that resided in his members, in his body, which were always warring against his desire to do good. And this law of sin seemed to always get the best of him. It had a tendency to regulate his actions and put, basically put him on a moral crash course. That was what he explains to us. But now, after coming to an end of himself, Listen, by the full realization of his moral incompetence to produce the life that God desires, he cried out for help, and through that he was then able to submit to the Holy Spirit. The result being, the law of sin that kept him down was superseded by the law of the Spirit, which lifted him up and set him free. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. A different principle is now at work in my life, and it supersedes the former one. You see, the responsibility that's placed upon the believer in Romans chapter 6, verse 13, to present our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness, is not to be confused with present your bodies to God and now be a good person. Get a hold of yourself. Do the right thing. Be a good person. Be righteous. Be holy. Yeah. That's kind of the impression, apparently, that Paul got early on in his faith, Romans 7, trying to live the Christian life, not by trusting the Holy Spirit, but by his own strength. Now listen, the text says, we are called to yield our bodies to God as instruments for his use. Now what do we not understand about the word instrument? What instrument do you know of that performs the work it was designed for, independent of the one wielding it? (laughs) A surgeon's scalpel does not make incisions independent of the surgeon. If the scalpel is to be of any real use, it must be wielded. It must be subject to the surgeon's hand. You get it, right? Then why do we miss it when we read it? We are an instrument. If we are to fulfill the purpose for which God saved us, we must yield our bodies to God for the master's use. And when we yield in submission, the Holy Spirit will lift us up and he will set us free from the tyranny of sin. He won't set you free from all sin. He won't set you free from the temptation of sin, but he will set you free from its tyranny. He will. Okay? Don't miss what the text is saying. Paul did not say that he made himself free. It was the law of the Spirit. He's the liberator. So who will deliver me from this body of death? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. But there's more. Verse 3, he says, "...for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh." Mind you, in its likeness, he was sinless. "...and on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh." Okay, so here in verse 3, Paul refers to the law of God. Going back to chapter 7, verse 1 through 14, specifically referring to the morality contained in it, the very thing in chapter 7 that Paul admitted he could not obey. I I want to, but I can't. And then he makes this interesting comment about the law being weak through the flesh. What does that mean? Now, it's not the law itself that is weak. It's our flesh, as Paul proves by his moral failure in chapter 7. The flesh, your flesh, my flesh, does not have the moral integrity, okay, or strength to be conformed to the righteousness of God, regardless of how strong the law is. You guys, the law is weak through the flesh. For example, uh, no one has strong enough hands to shape water into a usable structure, do they? Is the problem with our hands, or is is the problem the nature of water? The problem is not with God's law. The law is perfect, it's holy and just. Paul has already said that. So no matter how strong the law is, it cannot make righteous flesh out of you because of the nature of the flesh. As Romans 8, 7 says, the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. That's how messed up you are. <laughs> Me too, by the way. Okay. The flesh has no moral integrity doesn't matter how strong the law is. God's righteousness cannot make righteous flesh. So Paul says, what the law could not do, what it is incapable of doing, God did. Okay. So how did God do what the law could not? He says he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In our likeness. And then on the cross, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now the mistake that people make here is they think that Paul is talking about Jesus' work on the cross to save us from the penalty of sin. Guys, we left that conversation back in Romans chapter 5 in the progression of Paul's argument. Okay? That's settled. The, the, the discussion about the righteousness of Christ imputed to the believer and him delivering us from the penalty of sin, we, we've left that behind. We've now entered the discussion about being delivered from the power of sin, Romans chapter 6. Okay? It's the condemnation of sin itself It flows logically out of verse 2 in the context of liberation. Liberation from sin's power, not its penalty. So Paul is looking back again to Romans chapter 6, where the death of Christ destroyed sin's power over us, without which human righteousness would be impossible. If Christ did not condemn sin in the flesh, human righteousness would be impossible. The law couldn't condemn sin in our flesh and therefore make human righteousness a possibility. So God had to send Jesus to do that. What else did God do? Verse 4, he did this so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So listen, the, the death of Christ destroyed the power of sin to make human righteousness a possibility, but it did not make it a reality. The righteousness required in the law becomes a reality, as Paul says, as we walk in the Spirit. And that explains why Paul could have all of his problems in Romans chapter 7. Because the death of Christ makes it possible, doesn't make it actual. Righteousness, Human righteousness is only possible as we yield and submit our lives to the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now it's important to notice once again, as we did in verse 2, that Paul is not the one that secured these results. It's not him. In verse two, it was the Holy Spirit who made him free, made him free from the law of sin and death. He did not liberate himself. And here, it isn't Paul who fulfills the righteousness of the law. It's the Holy Spirit, okay? It's not fulfilled by Paul. It's a work done in Paul as he walks in the spirit. In Romans seven, we observe Paul walking in the strength of his own flesh in an attempt to fulfill the righteousness found in the law, proving that the law was weak through the flesh. But now, after refusing to walk in his own strength, he has yielded to the Holy Spirit's strength who's working in him, now listen, both to will and to do. Romans seven eighteen, Paul says, for I know in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. The will is present with me, but how to do what is good, it just isn't there. But now we find, That the Holy Spirit is both energizing his will and giving him the power to do. This is exactly what he says to the Philippians. Philippians 2.13, he says, It is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It's God. So walking in the Spirit requires a few things. Paul says we have to know the facts. We died to the tyranny of sin through the death of Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us and we are alive to God through the resurrection of Christ so that we can live a God-pleasing life. Then he says we must reckon these facts to be true of us so that we can say no to the desires of our flesh. He says we don't have to obey it. And with that, he says we must reject our own tendency to try and live according to God's word in our own strength, as Paul attempted and failed in Romans 7. And finally, we must be energized by the Holy Spirit even to yield our bodies to God for his use. So if we're to live the Christian life in conformity to the virtues of Christ, we must learn to rely upon the Holy Spirit. We must learn. This will not produce moral perfection. You will not be a super saint overnight. Any any of those in the room? You're not welcome here. (laughs) But day by day, it will yield likeness to Jesus, which is the very thing that God is after. He has predestined you, Paul says later in the chapter, to be conformed to the image of his Son. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it is the Spirit who is shaping you into the same image, okay? It's not a 12-step program, how you wish that it was. Just tell me what I gotta do. It's not a new dietary plan. It's not like Star Wars, where all you have to do is focus and you'll harness the power of the force. We're talking about God the Holy Spirit, a person who will not be harnessed, by the way, okay? He is to be trusted and obeyed as Lord, as Lord God Almighty. You're responsible for saying no to sin. You're responsible for appropriating the facts as true for you. You're responsible for rejecting self-reliance, but it's the Holy Spirit who makes you like Jesus. So listen, every morning, each day, make it your aim to recognize the Spirit's Lordship over your life, submitting to Him, yielding to Him, and He will energize your will, and He will make you like Jesus. Now in Galatians 5, we'll walk these things out less doctrinally and more practically, okay? All right, I gotta give Steve the time. Did you get the announcement? Okay. So why don't you stand up and we'll pray. Yeah, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to let you run and uh, get your children before there's problems. <laughs> so. Well, Father, I, I thank you for your word. And Lord, we can get pretty impatient and try to take things in our own hands to secure this, this life that you have made possible for us. But in doing so, we, we wreck it, we ruin it, we struggle. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would, Lord, teach us as we humble ourselves, as we, as we bow to the Spirit, that we may not fully understand what it is to walk in the Spirit, but we can experience it. We can know when we're doing it. And so I pray, Lord, that our eyes would be open to that. And day by day, Lord, we would find ourselves in submission to him as he conforms us into that image that you're so pleased with, the image of your Son. So that help us to keep our meditation in the Word. And Lord, give us the determination. You're the one that says that you work in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. And Lord, we want to be instruments of your good pleasure. So help us, we pray. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.